RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. So, a metre might not sound much, but even in just 20 centimetres of sea level rise has caused almost 10 times as much flooding. So, one metre of sea level rise will probably cause 100 times more flooding. Flooding already causes probably about a billion pounds of annual economic damages, but I would say that number will easily double as a result of sea level rise and climate change. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Professor Ivan Haig, and we're going to discuss the future of flooding. Ivan is Professor of Coastal Oceanography at the University of Southampton, where he's been for 11 and a half years. For the last 14 years, he has also been a research associate at the University of Western Australia. Before his life as an academic, he was a numerical modeller at ABP Marine Environment Research Limited. He writes widely on topics such as wave climate, hydrodynamics, wave models and such like. But it was an article that he wrote in October 2022 with Robert Nichols that caught my eye. It was entitled, Will London Soon Be Underwater? and it discusses the future of flooding, which is what we're going to discuss today. So Ivan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, I guess we ought to start with a really basic question, which is, what is oceanography? It's basically anything to do with the ocean. You know, 70% of the surface of our planet is ocean. It it plays a, a really key role in climate. You know, so many things, the fact that we we're able to breathe is down to the ocean. Um, you know, a lot of our oxygen comes from microscopic phytoplankton in the ocean. So oceanography is a very broad topic, but but I specialize in the sort of movement of the ocean and how that influences us on the coast. Um, so, so we're here to talk about the, the future of flooding, which uh, is obviously highly relevant because of, of the climate crisis. Um, and it's obviously a topic of uh, huge relevance to property insurers. Um, But first, in order to put that into some sort of context, please could you talk us through the history of flooding and and sea levels, really? Because I I recently read that 11,000 years ago, which is, you know, the blink of an eye in geological terms, kind of the sea level was 120 metres below where it is now. Now, you, you are right that that average level of the sea, I call it mean sea level, has varied enormously. And if you look back over the last 500,000 years in particular, uh, sea levels have risen um, from 120 metres lower than they were today to sometimes up to 5 to 10 metres higher than they were today. And so the, the biggest change there is, is yeah, you know, 11,000 years ago, we had a significant ice age. Almost all of the land up to Birmingham in the UK was covered by ice. Um, so all of that water was stored on land. So sea levels were 120 meters lower than they were today. Um, yeah, so sea levels have changed enormously. Um, and what's quite interesting is is the sort of role that that has had on civilization as well. So 11,000 years ago, sea levels were 120 meters lower than they were today. And we've had periods where 
it, it's called the melt, meltwater pulse, where sea levels rose very, very rapidly, in fact, higher than they are rising today. But about 7,000 years ago, sea levels started to stabilize. And really, in the last 2,000 years, sea levels have been quite stable. And what's really interesting is that the fact that that coincides with the growth of civilizations. Really? You know, 7,000 years ago is really when we're starting to get our first sort of Mesopotamian um, civilization. So the fact that sea levels were so stable has sort of helped to encourage growth in populations and cities and developments um, at the coastal zone. So if the mean sea level has been relatively stable for 7,000 years, what's happening at the moment with the mean sea level? Yep. So as I said before, you know, sea levels have been stable for about 2,000 years, so have changed um, relatively little. But around the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, uh, particularly after the Industrial Revolution, uh, sea levels have started to rise. And, um, you know, over the 19th, 20th century, that rate of rise was quite small, sort of one to two millimetres per year. Since 1970, uh, particularly as carbon dioxide rates really, really accelerated, that rate doubled uh, to about two to three millimetres per year. And then since 1990, that rate has increased again. And we're currently, you know, uh, towards four to five millimetres per year. So not only is sea levels rising, but that rate is accelerating. And all of the change that we're seeing now um, is bigger than anything we've seen in the past 2,000 years. So what is it that's driving this change? Yeah, of course. No, that, that's a good question. And, and there's three main components. So over the sort of early part of the 20th century, uh, there was two dominant components. So the first part is thermal expansion. So as you heat something, the particles move faster and expand. And so with seawater, as seawater heats up, it expands. And so over the last 150 years, we, we've seen sea levels rise by 20 centimetres. So around, this is approximate, but around five centimetres, maybe slightly more, five to seven centimetres has been caused by thermal expansion. So that's the first component. The second component is melting of land-based ice. Um, so over the 20th century, um, we've had another sort of seven centimetres has come from sort of me melting of, uh, of glaciers. Um, the other two bits of ice that are really, really important and particularly moving forward is Greenland. So we've had about three to four centimetres of sea level rise due to the melting of, uh, of Greenland. And we've had about one centimetre of sea level rise um, over that period uh, due to the melting of Antarctica. And then the third component is actually really interesting. And this is only something we've we've really sort of understood in, the, in, in more recent periods, but it's water storage on land. So we've, we've actually altered the amount of water that's stored on land. And what's really interesting is in the 50s and 60s, the rate of sea level rise actually slowed down slightly. And the reason why that was is because we've built a huge number of, of dams. So actually, we've, we've slowed the amount of water going to the ocean. So interestingly, we've actually very slightly slowed sea level rise down, but that's only a small component. Now, Greenland and Antarctica are, are in the last 10 years, actually thermal expansion and 
um, glacier melt is, is is not the dominant component anymore. The really dominant component is Greenland and Antarctica. And we're really worried about this moving forward. So if we were to melt all of Greenland, we would get about six meters of sea level rise. Now, that's not likely to happen this century, um, but you know the, the amount of melt from Greenland is really accelerating. And even more worrying is Antarctica, particularly the ice sheets in West Antarctica. We're starting to see a breakup of, uh, of those, particularly in and around the, the, the sort of Ross ice sheet. But if all of Antarctica was to melt, we would see sort of 65 meters of sea level rise. And this year, I don't know if you've seen in the news, but the we've had a record amount of melting um, from Antarctica, almost five times the average rate. So it's it's quite concerning. Um, I can I ask a technical question because yeah, of course. Uh, to my mind, how how one how one can work out mean sea levels to a millimeter. Is, is is beyond my ability to understand. So how are sea levels actually calculated? Uh, because, you know, <laughs> because as you say, with tides and things like that, it's it's constantly moving. Yeah. So how on earth can you calculate that sea level has increased by, say, 2.3 millimetres in the way that you do? So we, we have two main sources of information on sea level. One of them is what I call indirect methods, which is proxies. Um, so corals only live near to the surface of the ocean. So we can use dead coral to work out what sea levels were like 2,000 years ago. We can also use archaeology. So around the Mediterranean, uh, the Romans built fish dams on the coast. They had a, It's almost like a swimming pool on the coast. And so using those fish dams actually... We, we can tell very precisely doing measurements that sea levels were about 20 centimetres lower than they were today. Um, a, another really interesting proxy is actually paintings in Venice. Now, those methods are, are, are imprecise, um, but those are sort of proxies. Now, the two main methods we use at the moment are tide gauge records and satellite altimetry. So around the world, we have more than 1,500 tide gauge records. Many of those go back 100 years. Some of those goes back 300 years. But, but actually, more recently, you know, one of the problems with tide gauges is, is they are spatially biased. We have more tide gauges in Europe and America, less elsewhere. But since 1992, we've had four dedicated satellite missions. So the first satellite was called Topex and Poseidon. And that, it cost you know, many, many hundreds of millions of pounds, but it can record sea level to sort of sub-millimeter scale accuracy. It's, it's very hard to believe. So that's how using those sort of techniques now and those data sets, we are able to say with very high uh, precision. Whilst we're on this tangent, um, what's the knock-on effect for, for other measurements? So because Everest, for example, is 8,849 meters above sea level. So if sea level changes, does that mean that the height of Everest above sea level changes? So in the UK, um, all heights are measured relative to ordnance datum Newlin. And ordnance datum Newlin was basically the height of sea level at Newlin for about a year. I think it was 1920 to 1921. Um, and so sea levels have now risen relative to that period. Sea levels have risen by at least 10 centimetres. So mean sea level is now you know, at least 10 centimetres higher than ordnance datum Newlin. So yeah, technically, the heights of Snowden, the heights of Ben Nevis are, are now sort of 10 centimetres less than they were. So 
Yeah, so I don't quite know what datum is used for Everest, but but probably nowadays it's one of these geodetically derived um, measurements that's not based on mean sea level. Um, so, but yeah, you you are right. Certainly in the UK, the the heights of our mountains get lower and lower by a, a millimeter each year. You know, every few every year. So that's that's the past. That's kind of talking about flooding as it was, and kind of we've also discussed sea uh, that mean sea level as it is now. But what does the future hold for us? What, what, what changes in sea level are we expecting over the next few decades? Um, so over the next, you know, 100 years, well, well, first of all, let, let me just start by saying this, is sea levels are not going to go down. Sea levels are only going to go up in the next 100 to 1,000 years because of what's so-called our commitment to sea level rise. Uh, so even if we were to go into negative emissions, um, even if we were to go to carbon neutral, sea levels are going to rise for hundreds and hundreds of years. And that's because we've only warmed the surface of the ocean. That heat is going to take hundreds of years to travel down into the deep parts of the ocean. And also, it's a lot easier to melt ice than it is to make ice. So the process that we started in terms of melting the ice, even if we were to reduce temperatures, go into negative emissions, sea levels are still going to rise for hundreds of years. So no matter what we do from here onwards, we are committed to sea level rise. It's not just about mitigation. We are going to have to adapt to it. Now, in terms of the future, as I said before, thermal expansion is going to continue. Melting of glaciers is going to continue. But the really worrying thing now is Greenland and Antarctica accelerating. But um, I think we're definitely on for about a meter of sea level rise by 2100 based on kind of current rates of rise. Um, so that's the likely range. But we can't rule out higher estimates. If we do see a really significant change in Antarctica in particular, we could see um, up to about two meters of sea level rise. And earlier this year, last year, um, I was part of a big international in initiative where we had 60 sort of leading sea level scientists around the world came together. And we, we think that the it's unlikely at the moment, but we think we could get up to two meters of sea level rise. That's about the maximum this century. Um, unlikely. So I think it's more likely we're, we're on for about a meter. But as I said before, my concern is the long term, is that if we carry on admitting as we are, we could see up to five meters of sea level rise by 2300. Um, so actually with sea level rise, it's really the long term. So it, it's not just my daughter, but my daughter's daughter's daughters that you, you know are going to pay the price here. So we really have to act now. And I think the next three to four years is really crucial. If we can restrict temperatures to one and a half degrees, we will still get a meter of sea level rise. But if we carry on as mitting as we are, then we could see up to five meters, maybe even higher um, by, by 2300. It's a long, it's very hard to think that far in the future, but we really do need to start planning hundreds of years out. Right. Okay. And so, a meter. Let's let, let's go with your figure of a meter. Yeah. Then what what is the physical impact likely to be around the world of a rise in mean sea level of one meter? So so far we've spoken about mean sea level, but mean sea level on its own doesn't cause flooding. Flooding is caused by extreme sea levels, which is is tides plus storm surges plus waves on top of mean sea level. Now, there's two ways in which flooding can change. The first way is by raising mean sea level a meter, 
you know, in the past, let's say, you know, we take a site on the East Coast, which is very variable to cause flooding, you know, we might get a, a storm surge of a meter, which is very extreme, occurring once every 100 years. You know, we had a very, very big flood in 1953. So we had a storm surge of two meters on top of a high spring tide. But with mean sea level rise, a meter might not sound like much. But if sea levels rise about a meter, now, in order to cause flooding, we don't need a two meter storm surge, we need a one meter storm surge. And a one meter storm surge occurs probably every 10 years. Um, so that's one mechanism by sort of raising the baseline. But the, the other thing that we haven't accounted for here is changes in storminess. So not only are we seeing sea levels rising, but we're seeing changes in storminess itself. So a meter might not sound much, but e even just 20 centimeters of sea level rise has caused almost 10 times as much flooding. So one meter of sea level rise will probably cause 100 times more, more, more flooding. So uh, I, my understanding is, well, obviously the vast majority of the world's population lives on the coast as well. So I think 30% of the US population lives in coastal areas and and eight of the world's 10 largest cities are on or near the coast. So it's a significant change that we are creating for ourselves. In my mind, there's sort of four, my research group tends to focus on four main areas that we're really concerned about. So the first area is small island developing states. There's 58 small island developing states, mainly in the Pacific, the Indian, the Caribbean, so places like the Maldives. But the Maldives, you know, naturally... All of the Maldives is only one meter above sea level rise. They have now built an artificial island that's two meters, but everything that's natural is, is a meter. So with one meter of sea level rise, you know, that's threatening an entire country. Um, and we've done some very, very sad research uh, where we've been interviewing whole communities in the Solomon Islands. You know, thousands of people have had to leave their smaller island atolls to to, to sort of move to higher ground. So it's already, it's not something that's coming, it's, it's already happening now. The other area that's really vulnerable is deltas. So 600 million people live on deltas, most of those in Southeast Asia. They're some of the most productive places on the planet. You know, the delta in Bangladesh, the delta in the Nile. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work on the Mekong Delta in Vietnam. You know, a surprisingly large percentage of the world's rice is grown in there. A lot of the world's cashew nuts come from that region, lots of uh, aquacultures. So 18 million people live on the Mekong Delta, and most of the Mekong Delta is only one meter above sea level rise. And it's not just sea level rise, but as a result of the building of dams, less sediment is going to the Delta. So not only are sea levels rising, but a lot of these deltas are, are sinking uh, because they're not getting the same sand supply. And then, as you've said already, for me, the third area that is really of concern is cities and coastal communities. So there's 139 cities, all with populations of greater than a million. As you say, two-thirds of the world's megacities, populations of greater than 10 million are on the coast, places like New York, Miami, Jakarta. Um, and a meter of sea level rise is you know, going to cause massive, massive problems for those cities. And think how many towns are on the coast. Now, with some of the cities, it makes economic sense to protect them, but some of the small villages, it's just too costly to protect them. So I think we are going to have to see in certain areas a sort of migration away from the coast. And then one final thing very, very quickly is the other area that we work is coastal heritage. There is many, many hundreds of world-class UNESCO heritage sites 
on the coast, like Westminster in London is a World Heritage Site, very close to the coast. So again, I think we're going to see already many World Heritage Sites on the coast are, are, are being damaged because of coastal flooding and erosion. So yeah, those are the four areas that, that I'm really concerned about. And coastal populations are growing at three times global mean rates. So more and more people are sort of moving to the coast, more and more people moving to cities. Okay, uh, it, it, it's time to be parochial for a moment. Um, so what impact is this all likely to have on the, the UK? Uh, we'll come to London in a moment, but let's start with the rest of the country. So according to the maps that I've seen, basically Lincolnshire is just going to become one enormous paddling pool. So often you'll see those maps. Now, they're, they're, they're very simplistic maps in that you just sort of take the land, you raise sea level and you've seen what's flooded. Uh, and as you say, Lincolnshire is very, very low lying. But it's slightly more complicated than that because those areas have sort of, you know, natural flood protections. They have salt marshes. They have dunes. So it's slightly more complicated. Um, but 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 I would say, you know, sea level rise. Well, first of all, I would say flooding is not just coastal flooding, but river flooding and, and surface flooding are one of the biggest. In fact, probably the principal environmental risk facing the UK. Um, flooding already. Um, causes probably about a billion pounds of annual economic damages. But I would say that number will easily double uh, as a result of sea level rise and, uh, and climate change if we don't adapt um, in some way. Now, in terms of areas on the coast, uh, London is where a lot of the flood, biggest flood risk is. But um, Hull uh, on the Humber Estuary is, is very low-lying, very at risk. Uh, Portsmouth on the south coast as well. Um, and then, as you say, there's many hundreds of smaller towns and villages, but Portsmouth, Hull and London are where the biggest risk uh, is. Okay. I, I don't know if you can hear it in the background, but with a, with a wonderful sense of timing, the heavens have absolutely opened here in Bristol. <laughs> the, the, the rain is hammering down outside. Uh, if this was literature, I think that would be described as a pathetic fallacy, uh, but it's not. It's real life. <laughs> um, Anyway, so, so let's, you've mentioned there that London is, is one of the city's most at risk, um, largely because it was, it was built on a floodplain. Um, but so, so let's talk about London in, in a little bit more detail. And kind of to, to use the title of your article, Will London Soon Be Underwater? So uh, to put that into context, we were talking about these maps. And the, the, the map for London suggested that you know, a lot of London was projected to be under the annual flood level in 2030, so a mere seven years ago. And, and the flood zone was marked in red, obviously, because red is a scary colour. Uh, and it stretched all the way along the River Thames, all the way to Kingston and, and beyond in the west. Um, in the east, there was a huge swathe of land north of the Thames and across the whole of Southwark and Bermondsey, all the way down to Peckham, all of it, all of it, it was going to be, it was going to be wet. So to, to non-Londoners, this will mean very little. So, so let's express it in, in different terms. Which is, if that were to happen, then it would affect 1.42 million people, 321 billion pounds of residential property, 496 educational facilities, 711 healthcare facilities, and four World Heritage Sites. It would also affect 116 train or tube stations, over 2,400 kilometres of roads and nine power stations. So Ivan, is it all doom and gloom? So on one level, it is true. You know, all of that area is at risk and that risk is just going to grow and grow and grow. 
as sea level rise, but but also as defences age. Some of the defences in the Thames are quite old. Now, I have to admit, I, I have a bit of a bugbear about this because I get journalists contacting me all the time. I get people around the world saying, well, 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 London is, is to put it frankly, is, is, you know, in a lot of trouble. I was going to use slightly more colourful language there, but I resisted. <laughs> um, it's up a certain creek, perhaps. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, at face value, it is a real problem. But but actually, I, I get I get quite annoyed about this. London is the best protected city in the world. So actually, those flat maps don't take into account defences. And when you take into account the defences, you know, London is, I would say, probably one of, if not the most protected uh, city in the world. It has 200 kilometres of flood defences, dikes. It's got um, one very large storm surge barrier, movable storm surge barrier that closes when we expect a flood. It has seven other smaller barriers. It has almost 400 gates and pumping stations that all work in a very connected way, not just to protect London, but to protect the whole of the, the coastline along the Thames estuary. Not only that, but there's a, the Environment Agency and, it, and its partners have an incredibly detailed plan of how they're going to protect London out until 2100 and beyond. So already there's plans for a new Thames barrier. They're starting to design that starting to think about buying the land. They have this very, very detailed plan. So London actually could cope with many, many metres of sea level rise, maybe even as much as five metres of sea level rise. Now, if sea level rise is less than two metres, we, we need a new barrier in about 2070. We need to upgrade a lot of the flood walls and defences. So, sorry, Ivan, I'll just interrupt there for a moment. Could, could you, because we have lots of listeners who will not be... Londoners or, or from the UK. Could you explain what the Thames Barrier actually is? Yeah, of course, no, no problem. So the Thames Barrier is the sort of jewel in the crown. So it's basically what we call a, a movable storm surge barrier. So there's a series of piers spread across the, the Thames and there's 10 big gates. Um, so six of those gates sit underwater, four of the smaller gates on the side sit above water, but those are open most of the year. But when a storm is forecast to occur, those gates close and effectively block off the whole of the Thames. So um, the Thames barrier is a multi-billion pound bit of kit that, you know, London wouldn't exist without the Thames barrier and, and associated defences. My understanding is that the, the, the Thames barrier um, was closed. So holding back the water kind of in the 1980s, it was closed just four times in the whole of the 1980s. But in 2013, 2014 alone, it was closed 50 times. Is that? Yep. Well, I appreciate that was yep. a particularly bad year, but but, yep. Is, yep. Is, but that but that that is a sign that of of the, of the changes that are occurring. Yeah, no, definitely. So on average, you know, the barrier closes. I think the average is about four to five times a year. Um, but what's really interesting is it's quite hard to look at the statistics because, as you say, some years are real outliers. But the easiest way I do it is split the period in half. So the barrier has been operating for 40 years. It's closed 207 times in that 40 years. But in the first half of those 40 years, the first 20 years, um, we had about one third of the closures. And then we've had two third of the closures in the next 20 years. So yeah, the, the number of times the Thames barrier is closing is increasing. Um, and as we go to in the, in the future, that will increase more and more. So at the moment, we did have one season where we closed 50 times, but we, at the moment, our current predictions are, are 
you know, between 2060 and 2070 is when we'll start to have to close the barrier um, at least 50 times every single year. Um, and yeah, one of the things we can do is the current plan is, is around 2040 to raise defenses upstream of the barrier. Um, then we close the barrier slightly less often. But but at the moment, the plan is very much that we'll have a new barrier in 2070. But what's very nice about the Thames Estuary Training One plan is, is it's flexible and adaptable. So if sea levels rise faster than we think, we can move those times earlier. So rather than a new barrier in 2070, we can move it to 2050. So so that that's London. Um, and we you've already mentioned some of the other cities uh, around the world. What would you say were the cities that are causing most concern if you say that london is is well protected what about cities like miami which are very low-lying and i would assume are much harder to protect so london i'm not so worried about i think it's got a world-class plan um it is going to cost a lot of money though that's something you obviously have to bear in mind but as you say my concern is for for other places so at the moment, one of the most vulnerable cities in the world is Jakarta okay. in Indonesia. Not only are sea levels rising, but b- because of land subsidence from groundwater, the whole city has sunk by about three or four meters. So not only are sea levels rising, but the whole city has sunk. So the president of Indonesia has recently announced that they're actually going to move the capital away from Jakarta to, to further inland. So that's a case where you know they're making a really, really radical decision. Um, to, to move the coastline. But but you are right, you know, Miami is a really interesting one. The geology of it make it very, very hard to protect because the rocks there are very, very porous. So even if you build a flood defense, the water will just come from underground, will seep through from underground, the kind of raising water tables. So Miami, I think, is in a lot of trouble. Um, you know, New York is very vulnerable, but again, they're, they're creating a plan for New York very much like London. I'm more concerned about places in Southeast Asia, in developing countries where they don't have the money to do the very sophisticated plans that we're doing in the UK. Um, and we're coming to the end. So how would you summarize the risk that we, by which I mean the human population of the world, how do you summarize the risk that we face from increased flooding in the next few decades? I've said this already, but but I do think coastal flooding is one of the most significant risks we face. And it's just going to grow and grow and grow. It, it's not going to get less. So flooding is, particularly coastal flooding, is one of the biggest, biggest challenges we face, not just coastal flooding, but coastal erosion as well. So it's not just a matter of mitigation. We need to mitigate. We need to do absolutely everything we can in the next three or four years to get our carbon emissions as low as possible but even if we do that, we will have to adapt to sea level rise. So countries all around the world, and it's not just small islands, it's not just deltas, but the UK, the US will have to adapt and we will have to adapt in the UK. And it's going to be very, very costly. Now, in London, we're almost always going to protect London because of the economic value. But there is parts of the coastline where it's not going to make economic sense to adapt some small villages, you know, it's very sad. And I feel very sorry for the people, but, you know, there's a village in Wales where they're already talking about not protecting that village and people will have to move out of that over town. Now, no government is ever going to want to announce that, uh, particularly on a five-year election cycle, but we increasingly, we have very, very, very difficult decisions. And the Committee on Climate Change 
showed that you know there's many many hundreds of kilometers of coastline where it just doesn't make economic sense based on kind of current levels of flood defense to to protect them so we we are going to have to adapt we are going to have to retreat we are going to have to to live with water and to conclude ivan if you were asked for advice by an insurer of properties in low-lying coastal areas what advice would you give first of all i guess i think we need much much better flood maps um in that you know places like london are incredibly safe so um you know people might be tempted to look at the climate central maps insurers might be tempted to look at those maps and say well we're not going to insure any of these houses but but actually these houses are are very safe um you know a world class de- defenses so i think we significantly need to improve our flood mapping and particularly improve our sort of understanding of exactly where defenses are what area of the the land is safe but one of the things that i would love to see is you know if i lived in a floodplain thankfully i don't but if i lived in the floodplain you know obviously i would want insurance but one of the things that saddens me is you know this is particularly in the case in the us but houses get flooded they get insurance money and then they're built back exactly the same i'd like to see a law where if a house got flooded um the insurance money would be spent in such a way that when they built their house back or repaired their house that it was done in a way that was um you know they installed flood gates or raised electricity or, or did whatever they could to make that particular property more resilient but you know there there is some fantastic companies doing this so fathom in bristol um who work a lot with the insurance company have some very 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 sophisticated flood maps now that um you know insurance using uh, insurance is increasingly using that takes into account uh, climate change but yeah i think a lot more research needs to be done on um stress testing and climate testing and how that affects the insurance industry thank you ivan that was absolutely wonderful so thank you so much for your time rpc radio radio Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.